Disclaimer! As of this recording, Amagi Brilliant Park is no longer legally streaming on sites like Crunchyroll, High Dive, or the like. And the good news is that you can still physically buy the series on DVD and Blu-ray, but lord knows how long those things are going to stay in print. So by the time you listen to this recording, you may have to watch this series... By other means. Should this become legally streaming again or get a re-release on Blu-ray, it is your job as an anime fan to stream it legally and to buy the physical release to support the anime industry. And with that, on with the show. This is the Otaku Nate Show, Episode 22, Amagi Brilliant Park. Cheap thrills, big laughs. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Justin Young. Ooh, what's up, people? William, aka Lord Crab. Yo. And new to this show, Eric Berg. Good to meet y'all. Well, good to meet you too, Eric. And today we are going to be talking about Amagi Brilliant Park. And because I can't get Shoji Gato out of my head after reviewing all four Full Metal Panic anime, I decided that we're going to review another show that was created by him. Because Amagi Brilliant Park is also a light novel series written by Shoji Gato and was illustrated by Yuka Nakajima. The anime adaptation came out in 2014, and because it's a Shoji Gato anime, naturally it was handled by Kyo Ani. And like Full Metal Panic Fumofu and Full Metal Panic Second Raid, this one was directed by the late great Yasuhiro Takamoto. He's also the director of Lucky Star and Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, tragically killed in the Kyo Ani arson attack of 2019. And also like Full Metal Panic Fumofu and Second Raid, this show was written by Fumihiko Shimo. He also wrote the previously reviewed Die Guard, as well as some of KyoAni's most famous series, namely the key trilogy of Air, Canon 2006, and Clanad. So, now that we've got the technical stuff out of the way, what is Amagi Brilliant Park about? I think it's probably cliche at this point, but it is Roller Coaster Tycoon the anime, quite literally. That's a good way to put it. But Roller Coaster Tycoon, if it also had magical creatures and cute anime. I just came up with a better description for it. Kingdom Capers, the anime, minus Disney. So, effectively, it's high school kid, because all anime starts in high school. <laughs> and he gets <laughs> taken at gunpoint... To go run a magical park, of course, he doesn't know that at first, but eventually it kind of plays out that 
this is almost like a portal to a fairy tale uh, magical world and is used to import animus to basically continue and feed the world and from there it's basically trying to make sure the park stops breaking down and the staff stops you know killing people and the disaster that is this park doesn't completely fly off the rails so they can get enough guests to save the park in time as you said eric roller coaster tycoon the anime something we will elaborate further once we get to the details so where did you all hear about amagi brilliant park and what were your impressions going into it all right so back in my one of the many anime clubs I've surfed through in my life, we actually put this on as part of our uh, normal selection of shows, and in quite in line with my attempted Disney reference earlier, as well as the first thing a lot of th people picked up on, mascot characters. Considering I'm in a room surrounded by Disney fans, particularly of the parks, naturally people went absolutely berserk. Upon finding an anime, that's essentially, that takes place in an entire theme park. And I gotta say, it's been quite a fun one to both uh, watch through and also meme. So, we're in for a total treat with this one. Well, um, as for me, I didn't really have much of an... It, the show never really made an impression on me when I first heard about it back in 2014. I didn't even get around to trying out the show until I think maybe a year or two ago, and I've only watched three or four episodes. I didn't get around to watching the rest of the show in its entirety until this very instant for this. I looked at uh, Full Metal Panic and got into that, and if you're looking for more of that, this is where you end up, so... It's interesting because it starts to add more plot and layer stuff on as it goes on, but at its heart, it's basically a, a very creative and well-timed comedy that just doesn't disappoint throughout the entirety of the run. Like William, I really didn't pay too much attention to Amagi Brilliant Park. I saw some stuff that looked like typical Kyo-Ani artwork that also had a character that kind of looked like Bontakun from Full Metal Panic, but I didn't really know exactly what sort of show it was. I saw some people on Facebook talking about it, saying that it was a good show, but it didn't really grab my attention until I went to a panel at Castle Point Anime 2019, and it was a panel that was all about anime, about going to work, and one of the shows that was featured was Amagi Brilliant Park. And when they talked about in detail what the premise was about saving a failing theme park, elements of magic and the supernatural within it, the place being run by fairies and sorts, I'm like, okay, yeah, man, I'm there. I'll check it out. And I bought the limited edition from Sentai Filmworks, and uh, we'll discuss that about how to watch this show because, uh, oof. <laughs> oof. Truth. Yeah, oof indeed. But I watched it, and... Yeah, it's Eric says, it's a very well done, very funny, even heartfelt at points, comedy series. Yep, it does not, it does not disappoint on the amount of heart. Whenever you Personally, look at comedies, I think one of the 
things that really stands out is when there is that heart to it, where it's not just a variety of jokes thrown at the wall. There's also kind of a backbone. And uh, Amagi has one that doesn't like, it doesn't kick in at first, but it really, by the end, it, it shines through. Amagi to me is just a very fine show. I enjoyed it enough. I got some good laughs out of it, but I just I just didn't think it was I didn't think it was that great enough. Alright, well we'll discuss our overall enjoyments. I can see some people liking it but not loving it. I mean it is a KyoAni show after all. But animation I don't think we have too much to say other than it's a KyoAni show. If you've seen any anime produced by Kyoto Animation, it's guaranteed to be really, really good. Really fluid, really nicely detailed. It's just really good, as you expect from the studio. I was going to say that it's a very... It's a very fluid, very bright, colorful KyoAni show. It's It's a classic 2010s Kiyoani look to it. You can sort of see, like, see a little bit of a through line to some of their older shows, like Haruhi and uh, Lucky Star. That sort of that very bright fluidness. It's got it's got all those chords to it, but it's definitely it's got a bit of uniqueness to it. Being a since after all is derived from a light novel. They also put a really interesting amount of effort and background, and part of that's because it's comedy, so you can do background gags and just all sorts of absurdist things. Um, on a rewatch, especially, it's not necessarily the quality of the animation, but like the detail of some of the stuff they did with like background characters' reactions or just absurdist things going on that they didn't have to animate if they didn't want to. Another thing that I did like was the editing when it came to the comedy. It was paced, but it was very well-timed, and it helped to make the jokes land very, very well when they needed to. Do you have any examples? I don't have any that come to mind, but I guess you could say, just take my word for it, the the editing and the comedic timing in the show is really You did mention the character designs. I guess you should point out the character designer... It's someone named Miku Katawaki. They also did the character designs for Beyond the Boundary. And they were also character designs for the aforementioned Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid. And they are and they are the character designer on an upcoming show called Tsurune Kazemai Koko Kyudobu, which is an anime all about archery. Well, you can see the dragon love pull through on this because uh surprisingly say. there's a decent amount of dragon character design necessary for the show i was gonna say there's especially if you look at stills from the show it definitely shows up uh someone just mentioned the uh dragon the uh dragon love i guess it was in the character designs you can actually see that and it's sort of i was gonna i was gonna call it the dragon flare when you think of dragons, you think of a lot of flair, a lot of style and speed, and it shows up, and that was actually the first thing you'd notice when looking at this show. And with that connection to Dragon Maid, that reminds me of any of the moments in the show where Sento pulls out her hands. Like, it is very quick and very, very flashy. Kind of like some of the more 
Sinny or magical moments from Dragon Maid? Some of my favorite is, and I didn't catch this the first time I saw it, but every time she pulls out her guns in public, people just like horrifyingly recoil in the background. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a really nice touch. I love the design of Sento's gun, even though it looks like she nicked it off of Mommy from Madoka Magica. It's the same style of rifle. This very ornate flintlock sort of rifle. I guess we can call it the magical girl rifle of choice right there. I mean, Sento can be considered a magical girl if you really think about it. (laughs) She is more in common with some of the older kind of magical girls, though, like Sally the Witch or uh, Akko-chan. Speaking of Sento, I do want to signal out Sento's design because all the main girls in Shoji Gato's anime, I will say, always have the right amount of sex appeal to them. Where there's just enough curvature or exaggeration in their proportions where they're attractive to waifu connoisseurs, but not over-exaggerated to the point where it reaches, say... High School of the Dead territory, or Iken territory. I was actually yeah. just going to mention Iken. Thank you for that. There's a smart amount of restraint in in the show where, yeah, I mean, it it has attractive designs and stuff, but it's very, it thinks about what it's trying to do and not completely distract or blow up what it's trying to do. There's a great scene with Moful and the Princess that, in a much worse show, would go in a fan service direction and in this show it's just well, why do you care so much about her well she's my niece why wouldn't i and there's like a strong subtleness to and that i noticed especially with sento that i'm trying to put a word to i almost call it formal like a formal beauty or like like a formal look or to it but it's like it's hard to describe it's one part subtlety and one part just the right amount of color to get your attention Darn, what is it to it? One part, I guess, strength. You put all three together and you get just the right amount of fan service. It's like, it's enough to get your attention, especially since she's on screen a lot. But also, it's not going to get on your nerves real quickly. I believe the word you're looking for, Justin, is regality. Regality. I'm I'm using that one a lot now. I love it. Yes, Sento, like, the first thing you will notice about Sento isn't any of her curves, like her bust or anything. You'll notice the bow in her hair, or her hair itself, that little ponytail she has, her her Royal Guard-esque uniform and the skirt with it. Shoji Gato, I don't want to say he understands how to use sex appeal the right way, since that's more on the illustrator but this is something I touched on in the Full Metal Panic review. It's just enough. And the same goes for the other female characters in the show, namely the four fairies. Each member of the fairy idol group has a different set of appeal in terms of features. And they're absolutely hilarious. I, You throw that voice acting, especially in the dub, with that cast of royalty of voice acting in there, and then throw some really fun comedic animation with it. Yeah, you, know, you could probably watch someone surfing on the office chair for hours and just seeing the craziness that that entails while they're running through the 
main office. But of course, we also have to talk about the stars of the show. No, not the main characters. We got to talk about the mascots. I love their design. The the mascots, in my opinion, are the best characters in the whole show. They are hilarious. And we'll get to why, but the one that caught my attention is, of course, Moful, because he looks just like Bontacoon, and surprise, surprise, that was intentional. I was trying not to, like, laugh randomly back here, but I'm... Oh, I'm just trying to, but my goodness, my goodness, the acting for Moful in both English and Japanese is underrated comedy. Let me put that out there again. This is some underrated visual and verbal comedy right here. Man. Do any of you know the story as to why Moful looks like Bone Takoon? No, I don't. Actually, I always assumed it was because I always assumed that it's because Gato literally builds his stuff around references that amuses him. It seems. Well, according to Shoji Gato, and I need to check if this is true, but it's funny if it is, and it's funny if it's not. When he was writing down descriptions for all the characters, once he got to the mascots, when he was writing the description for Moful. Every time he tried to write down what he wanted Mofo to look like, his mind kept going back to Bontakun. And so, when it came time to send the character descriptions to the illustrator, he said, Uh, yeah, can you please draw your own version of Bontakun for Mofo? Thanks! <laughs> Whoops! I hope that's true. I really hope that's true. <laughs> I think it is, which is why they call him a knockoff, because, well, it's true. Moful is a character design that, once you read the history, is Shoji Gato saying, I didn't have any other ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying back here <laughs> from that. I'll just, I'll just rip myself off. Nobody will care, right? What, what makes it work is that they use him in so many creative ways and they just throw in all these little things at, at the risk of explaining a joke. They go out for drinks and they take off their shoes, but it's just feet it's that just look exactly like the feet. And it's just all these little things kill you. And so it's like, as much as I love Fumofu and I've seen this character before, it's it's wholly different because it's such in a different light and they use basically every joke they can think of with it. And what he does is hilarious in both physical comedy and in voice acting. And speaking of, let's get to the soundtrack for the show. The soundtrack for this was done by Shinkichi Mitsumune. If that name sounds familiar, it's because his most famous musical credit is that he was the composer for Revolutionary Girl Utena, one of the best anime soundtracks, not just of the 90s, but of all time. Now, I was hoping when I looked at Shinkichi Mitsumine's resume that he would at least have something notable after Utena. Oh boy, it was all downhill from there. Yeah, I'm actually looking at his um, his credentials of anime he composed for. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
He did the music for Yu-Gi-Oh! Duel Monsters, which, you know, the music in that is really good. And he also provided the non-pillows songs for Furikuri. But other than that, his resume includes such wonderful shows like Rosen Maiden, Sky Girls, The Familiar of Zero, Negima, the first series, Cyber Team in Akihabara, and Green Green. Yeah. Ew, Green Green. Yeah. God, just hearing Green Green makes me want to take a shower. Amen to that one. <sighs> I do feel that Amagi Brilliant Park is the best show that he's done the music for in some time. And I enjoyed the music for Amabri, not gonna lie. I... I love the slower songs, but that's because it reminds me of the slower music from Revolutionary Girl Utena. The music for me is... I don't really remember it, but I don't think it's terrible either. It stands out when it needs to. That's the best way I can describe it. I mean, it's Some... kind of supposed to be Here the backing track, and it, it accomplishes that, like, perfectly fine and you don't ever feel like it's missing anything but it's not it's not a music driven show per se one sort of problem i have with a lot of modern anime is that the soundtrack tends to sort of fall into the background and not really draw attention to itself which can be good or bad i mean not everything nowadays can be an ear-grabbing sawano epic of noise but I kind of like it when comedy or slice-of-life anime sort of goes one step above of what you usually get. Funny thing about this soundtrack, it has a tendency to show up in a lot of places that you wouldn't expect. For instance, there's at least one Thomas the Tank Engine web series, of all things, that uses this music. What? Um, yes! Yes! One of the ones out of the UK, I think. I think it was an episode of. Oh yeah, it was an episode of the uh, Dark Railway series of all things. Uh, I don't know if I want to link to that or not, but I guess my listeners can find it on their own. Yes, I would definitely. There's a lot of episodes, so linking to them all. But that'll that's something that they can find on their own to search Dark Railway series. But back to the point, that just shows how good it is at both being, I guess, iconic in and of itself, but also being very flexible. It sets the mood for each scene well, and also it's got just enough identity to add a little bit of flavor, but not also overpower everything. And also, let's be honest, it sells a lot of the zanier, inherently cartoonier elements, dare I say, of this show very well. But, uh, Eric, um, before my recording got killed off from a power surge, you were talking about the show's opening. I love the opening for Amagi Brilliant Park. It reminds me of stuff even, like, I know we're going back to Full Metal, but, like, the Full Metal Panic Invisible Victory thing, you just can't imagine a better opening for that, and it's kind of like this one. It literally will make you clap in the middle of the opening. It pumps the whole feel of an amusement park up. It's just a really good example of a music taking even cues from 
kind of a theme park amusement park setting to nail the op my favorite visual is they have like what look like camera footage of the various staff doing their job around the park I actually rewound the opening several times to pay attention because they keep adding different uh, frames to it. Very sort of Osamu Dezaki in terms of its direction for that one shot. Definitely, I would agree on that. And I know there's a little bit character, but it's also to music. It gets back to that like attention of detail where you can keep pulling things out of it. And <laughs> speaking of music, the this may go better at a... Back when we were talking about Sento, but her guns are actually named after the type of guitar that the Bee Gees used. Sato obviously has a really deep knowledge of, of music and, and reference from all over the place. The opening of the song is called Extra Magic Hour, which, knowing Shoji Gato and his love of references, is a thing at Disney parks. The Extra Magic Hours are the extended hours for guests that want to stay after the park closes. Like, if you buy an extra magic hour pass, you can stay, like, until midnight at the Disney parks. Trying really hard not to reference the Funkland with that one. But, yep, that was clever and brilliant. And also, is a brilliant way to hook an audience. Even in a subtle, subtle way. This song, I may or may not have heard this song a couple times out of context to prove that. I mean, when it opens with the lead singer singing, look at the sky, it's magic hour at the most fortissimo of fortissimo of voices, it hooks you in right away. And it's what a good opening should be. There's a reason why this one's in rotation on my anime openings playlist. So, going on to the boring part of the review... Voice acting. Our main hero, Seiya Kanie, is voiced by Koki Uchiyama. He is Kei Tsukishima in Haikyuu, Ikuya Kirishima in Free, which we talked about pre-show, Toge Inumaki in Jujutsu Kaisen, and Tomura Shigaraki in My Hero Academia. For all you Gundam fans, he's Benajur Lynx in Gundam Unicorn, he is Roxas in Kingdom Hearts and, ugh, he's Daryl in Guilty Crown. Can't win them all. Isuzu Sento is voiced by Ai Kakuma. She is Ruko Kominato in the Wickross series. And yes, I looked up how it was pronounced before the show was recorded. I did my research. Mayumi Kurase in Shokugeki no Soma. Lala the Dullahan in Monster Musume. For all you Isekai fans, she is Eris Boreas Greyrat in Mushoku Tensei, and Edelgard von Hersvelg in Fire Emblem Three Houses. Princess Latifa is voiced by Yukio Fuji. She is Himiko Agari in Komi-san Can't Communicate, Kiriha Kisaki in Strike the Blood, Rebecca Rosalini in Lupin the Third Part Four and Mama Inuyama in the 2018 Gegege no Kitaro anime. Our villain, Takaya Kurisu, is voiced by Junichi Suwabe, and this is fitting casting considering that he is Tamaki in Dead Man Wonderland. Clutch. The guy is just really good at voicing villains in it. 
He's also Archer in the Fate series, Akira Hayama in Shokugeki no Soma, his most Fujoshi of Fujoshi roles is Victor in Yuri on Ice, and his most important role, he's Space Dandy! So granted, though, whenever Space Dandy comes up, it's usually, I mean, when it comes to voice acting, it's usually English. It's a shame, because there's a lot of very talented people on the sub-side. For the mascots, Ayako Kawasumi is Mofel. She is Saber in the Fate series, the original Saber. The one that's pretty much the mascot of the Fate series. Laura Stewart in A Certain Magical Index. Megumi Noda in Nodame Kantabile, and Kazumi Yoshida in Shakugan no Shana. Macaron is voiced by Ryoko Shiraishi. She is Hayate Ayasaki in Hayate the Combat Butler, Kaede Nagase in Negima, and Miyuki Takamachi in Nanoha. Speaking of Negima, Ai Nonaka plays Terami. She is Konaka Konoe in Negima, Kyoko Sakura in Madoka Magica, Kafka Fura in Sayonara Zetsubo Sensei, and perhaps the role that is most important, she's Beauty in Bobobo Bobobobo. Most important indeed. There's plenty of others I could go on about. I don't want to go through the fairies, considering that this is already taking too long. But there is one voice actor who stuck out like a sore thumb, and when I heard it on the Japanese side, I went, No, that can't be him. But lo and behold, Taramo, the main construction mole, is voiced by one of my absolute favorite voice actors, Nobuyuki Hiyama. <laughs> that is awesome. Every anime fan knows him for something. Shonen Jump fans will know him as Ikaku in Bleach and Hiei in Yu Yu Hakusho. Mecha fans know him as Shiro Amada in Gundam The Eighth MS Team and Guy in Galgaigar. Trigger fans will know him as Viral in Gurren Lagan and Uzu Sanagayama in Kill la Kill. And video gamers will know him as Joe Higashi in The King of Fighters. And probably his most famous role, not just in video games or in the West, but... Probably ever? He was the voice of Link in The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. What can you say? The guy's an absolute legend. He also voices Kota Hirano in High School of the Dead, and he's really the only good part of that show. Well, one of the good parts of that show. I mean, what you expect? Kota's one of the best things about it. True. I have feelings about High School of the Dead, and we'll just leave it at that. But that's it for the Japanese side. Let's move on to the dub. Now, I don't mean to be mean or demeaning, but Sentai's dubs tend to be hit or miss. But I think they nailed it with the dub for Amagi Brilliant Park. Yes, yeah. certainly. Same here. I was going to say yes, that this is definitely one of their better pre-high dive dubs. Everything just felt... It felt so solid. And also, I went back and looked at the cast list for this, and they turns out they brought their A-team for it. I'm sure Nate's going to break down, um, break it down exactly, but let's just say they, they definitely cared a lot about this one. What surprised me was that they did bring the A-game and the A-team, but 
they didn't necessarily give them just the big roles. They used some people who have not had a whole ton of credits for the main, especially like the main three people characters, and they all just were fantastic. Seiya is voiced by Sentai poster boy Adam Gibbs. He's the leading role in a lot of Sentai shows, and I know people have complained about him getting the lead in things, but damn it, he's great as Seiya. He really is. I've always really liked Adam, even if he does sound like Jason Liebrick. At least to me, I think he does. But he's really good as Seiya. I was going to say well, that he's actually one of the best things to come out of Sentai over the past couple of years, i got to say. You also have to have a certain delivery to be able to pull off a character that is as self-centered as he is. And he does pull it off because it could have gotten quite annoying very fast. His best acting comes in the eighth episode where Seiya is ill and the other cast members have to substitute as him. But rather than having the other actors do a voice like the Japanese side, Adam and subsequently... Koki Uchiyama on the subside have to mimic the voice of four specific cast members. And what we got was some glorious friggin' chaos. The other lead actor is Molly Searcy, I hope I'm saying that right, as Isuzu Sento. I thought she was pretty good. There were times where I felt she was a little too robotic, and I understand that given Sento's character is a kudere, but I think she was pretty good. I really... Oh, sorry, continue. I was going to say that... um, I would say that she was definitely... And she's another very underrated talent, in my opinion. And some... There are very few people out there in English and, and... Especially in the English dub world who can pull off a flat monotone where you have to really hold the note like that for sometimes like like several minutes on end and um gotta say that's actually one of the she was one of the most inspired casting choices of this show for that reason because Sento you need someone who can hold those flat notes while everything else goes on around her uh I was about to say uh yeah Molly captures Sento's deadpan demeanor so well in a lot of in a lot of the more comedic moments i will admit though i will side with justin on this she does sound robotic from time to time but i can let that personally out overall she was really solid as well as a fun trivia note she has a background in theater she does ballet yeah i heard about that recently and i gotta say is absolutely brilliant and frankly ironic considering the because I've known people who've worked in an actual theme park before, and that is a lot of their backgrounds. Because after all, I do live right the road here from Six Flags and Bowie. You can definitely feel the sort of energy that brings. I respect decisions like that, both from an acting perspective and from the audience perspective. And I gotta say, very subtle, but very, but very useful trick on Sentai Filmworks' part. It was nice to see her being able to use the more deadpan demeanor in a better show than some of the other ones, like Agamika Kill, that she's had to have a good vocal performance, but it just isn't enough to save the rest of the day. Uh-huh. We'll cross that bridge, but as I say, a good dub does not a good show make. 
Cindy Lou Parker voices Latifa. This is her only credit outside of being Sylvia Ikaruga Misarugi in Cross Ange. Hmm. I gotta say I'm surprised about that, actually. But as you talked about, the stand-up performers in the dub are the mascots. And Eric and I talked about this. But you have three members of the ADV Old Guard playing the mascots. You've got Jessica Calvello as Tyranny, Allison Keith Ship as Macaron, and keeping consistent from being in Full Metal Panic, Fumofu, Tiffany Grant plays Mofo. There is nothing more fun than a well-used replacement for swear words and Mofo and Mof. Just the way everything is thrown out there is fantastic. Watching Tiffany just go at this script, especially when Mofo goes and gets as angry as he can over the course of the show. I was going to say, maybe a good subtitle for this show should be Tiffany Goes Ham, because that was, we got that in spades. Well, that's what I love about Tiffany Grant. Even when she's in a bad show, you're never going to get a bad performance out of Tiffany. She goes and she goes hard whenever she does roll. Even if the show is no good, she always gives 100%. And that's what I love about her, both as an actor and as a person. And of course, I want to talk about the fairies, because we also have some ADV veterans or carryovers from there. Emily Nivis plays Muse. Juliet Simmons as Cobury. She's one of the newer actors, I should say, in this. Allison Sumrall, another vet, plays Salama, but the standout... Like in Full Metal Panic, is Lucy Christian as Sylphie having the time of her life? Sylphie is what I like to refer to her as my one single brain cell. <laughs> Some of the voice acting that Lucy's doing in this aren't even like lines. They're just like sounds while she's writing on office chairs or singing to herself in the background it is like i would have loved to see in the script and see how much of that is just lucy christian doing whatever she wants and how much of that was actually written because every time she's on screen she's doing something i like to think that she was never given the script i just think that uh chris ayers was just telling her hey to go ham and that was i can picture that now chris ayers telling lucy christian to just gonna send it. Ghost stories. This. It's basically the same direction Matt Greenfield gave Doug Smith and Golden Boy. But this dub to close out the segment. Fantastic. Big ups to Christopher Ayers. May he rest in peace. And scriptwriter Caitlin Barr for producing an incredibly entertaining dub. Yep. This time's a thousand. An all-time classic of the Sentai Filmworks library in terms of their ability to dub. Especially with how big this cast gets, and they've still got talent in people who show up in an episode or might have six or seven lines the entire show. Well, that's sort of what Chris Ayers did when he was still alive. Whenever he had to direct a show, he would always try and bring in new faces or young actors to get them started. And I miss that, dude. Yeah, yeah I do. I was very lucky to meet him when he was still alive. Same here. On a happier note, though, let's get into the show itself. And Eric, you pretty much described the show as best you can. 
Amagi Brilliant Park pretty much is Roller Coaster Tycoon the anime, in that our hero, Seiya Kanie, is put in charge of a theme park and has to reach a certain goal by a certain amount of time, or the park closes. And they don't really touch on this in the show too much, but Seiya used to be a child star. So it's likely that he uses his background in showbiz as sort of inspiration for some of the decisions that he makes. But what this is, is ultimately a group of people trying to save a local theme park, and also commentary on the state of amusement parks in Japan. I was also going to add, I'm surprised you didn't say in general, because there's a lot that can be taken from from the show and applied to amusement parks in general. Not just from general aesthetic. I mean, because it shows how, essentially how, how to say, like, how amusement parks are run both into the ground, like, I've been avoiding this one for way too long, Hard Rock Park here in the U.S., and over there in Japan, our dreamland, which I'm going to assume this show draws a lot from. I found it strangely, I guess you could say, foreboding, a premise perspective, and what happens to the theme park industry in the current, in the current timeline. Well, you mentioned Nara Dreamland. For those who have never heard of this, Nara Dreamland was basically a park that was set to be Japan's version of Disneyland, but after Walt pulled out at the last minute, the park was pretty much already built, so they basically made it Japan's flagship theme park for throughout the 60s and 70s, but once Tokyo Disneyland was built in the mid-80s, and if you know Japan, Japan loves Disney. Nara Dreamland basically fell out of fashion, and its last years of existence are very sad. It shut down in 2004 and remained abandoned for many, many years, and kind of became a tourist trap for urban explorers and also vandals. And the same kind of applies to Japan's theme park industry. One of my favorite YouTubers, Coaster Studios, run by a guy named Taylor, who I hate because he gets to go to all these cool theme parks and I don't, did a very interesting video because he went to Japan on a theme park tour, and he talks about the state of Japan's theme parks, about how they're usually always empty, really run down, a lot of attractions are closed and not replaced. It's a very sad state of affairs. Because, like, the two biggest parks in Japan are Tokyo Disneyland and its second gate, Tokyo Disney Sea, and Universal Studios Japan. And after that, you have a lot of smaller parks like Nagashima Spa Land, uh, Fuji-Q Highland, and Tokyo Dome City. But, like, all the other parks around Japan are usually empty for most of the week, and they really only get attendance on Sundays, which is a day off for many people in Japan. And so, I feel that this is Shoji Gato commentating on the state of Japan's theme park industry and sort of what goes into running a theme park, kind of sort of suggesting what they can do to save what is kind of a dying industry. And there are multiple factors that go into Japan's theme park decline, like their declining population, Japan's stressful work culture having hectic school weeks where students have to cram endlessly. 
Like, there's a lot that can be discussed as to why Japan's theme parks are the way they are, but that's just my two cents on the matter. And I think Shoji Gato handles it in a way that is poignant, but also not really depressing. Like, he offers an optimistic take as, this is a problem that is perpetuating Japan's amusement park industry, but it can be fixed. But then again, this is just me doing death of the author shtick. I think one of the pretty impressive things that he did was, you know, the whole point of an amusement park is for no one to see the back room, no one to see the backside of anything in terms of all the infrastructure that goes into doing this. And he spends a ton of time on the admin side, on the infrastructure side, on the maintenance side, and really does emphasize that it's not just the stuff you see on the front side of the amusement park, but it is all of the staff, the cast members, all the way down, um, which I thought was really neat because there's a lot of shows that wouldn't necessarily go that deep into the weeds. And then in terms of on stuff, I think he, he really is. I think one of the things I pulled out of it was... I almost wonder if he's going to send an econ economic message of like, take what you do best and focus on that. Get rid of everything else and understand what the heart of the business is of a theme park. You know, I don't know if anyone is listening to him in the theme park industry, but there was more there than meets the eye. You can also tell that like he was really showcasing like, I don't mean to like repeat whatever you guys have just said. Like you get to see like all the uh, the backstage happenings, like all the ground politics uh, of the uh, economical side, like all the money and business practices that go behind the scenes. It's really interesting stuff too when you think about it. And I just want to say how much I appreciate that the head of maintenance is just a giant wrench. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Shoji Gato, knowing his love of Western culture and various references, that he calls the mascots and the staff that works behind the scenes and in front of the camera cast members. That's pretty much a Disney term. Yep. I knew someone who used to be a Disney cast member and can confirm this. I'm sure that's worth a few good stories, but that's neither here nor there. And I think what makes Amagi Brilliant Park so great is we reveal more and more members to the cast, but it doesn't feel like the cast is getting bloated at any point. We have a core three of Seiya, Isuzu, and Princess Latifah, three secondary characters in Mofel, Tirami, and Macaron, and then you have everyone else. The fairy idols, the other behind-the-scenes cast members, like the aforementioned Wrench-kun, that is his name, Wrench, Nakamo, the construction worker moles, uh, the big red dragon, Rubroom, I believe his name is. And I just love that there's a security guard who wears a wrestling mask everywhere. And it's never explained why or how. My favorite part of that is I think he's the only human character that's actually wearing any costuming because it is specifically called out that he's human. He's not one of the fairies. No, he's, he's just... He does that for some reason. Well, there's three more human girls that join the cast later on. But, like, in terms of actual cast members that work within the park, he's not some kind of costumed character, technically. He's just a guy who walks around wearing a wrestling mask. 
He's basically embracing the tradition of luchadors wearing their masks wherever they go, like El Santo or Blue Demon Jr. Also, I love that the chef character is literally made of 100% pure beef. Like, there ain't this much meat on the characters in Baki. This guy is all meat. Literally. We have the meats. <laughs> Where's the beef? A, it's all in him. And that's as advertised by Wendy's. And that's what I love more about Amagi Brilliant Park. Because there is so much world building in this. Like, one measure I use for my overall enjoyment of anime is how much world building is involved in this show. And there's a lot for what is a very small location. There is so much depth to the world of Amagi Brilliant Park, given that its cast members come from this place that is called Maple Land. And the more you see, like, the more it's just like, where do all these characters come from? You wonder, like, just what else does this magical land have to offer? Well, and they even build it out mentioning that other theme parks are doing a similar thing. So does that mean that other theme parks are the same, you know, portals from another magical land? At one point, they even run down to the portal that connects their park back to the land of Maple Land. I mean, it just, they have a really smart way of not ever just dumping exposition, but leaving you with a ton of questions of just wanting to see more of this. Having read five of the six Full Metal Panic books, I can say Shoji Gato is really good at the art of show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of these characters don't need an explanation as to where they come from or how they function. You just know. But I think we I want to circle back to the main cast. Like, what do we think of Seiya as a character? Because I love just the way he functions. It's like you were saying earlier, I think his background in theater... It, it gives this kind of interesting perspective on like what it means to be a manager and a boss, how just being a leader, you're not even necessarily saying things you believe or that you know other people know that you may not believe it, but there's this kind of keeping up appearances that is really well done where there's time after time where he's not really being a leader, he's being an actor to the group. It's a very nuanced look at leadership that I really enjoy. I just like that he's just a narcissistic douche. Like, yeah, he knows that he's kind of a dick. He's, and I think that the way that he's written in this show is, well, it's not overbearing enough. He doesn't come off as unlikable. He's a fun uh, main character. It's kind of like Senku from Dr. Stone. He can be a dick, but he's a dick for a good reason. I also really enjoy that at one point he's, basically becomes Lelouch in that he gets a code Geass, but it can only be used once. That's another thing I love about Shoji Gato. Whenever he gives a character or an object a special power, he puts like some sort of fun limiter so that it doesn't become a plot device or a deus ex machina. I talked about how the Lambda Driver in Fullmetal Panic is used at just very specific moments so that it doesn't feel like it's a plot convenience. And in the case of Seiya's vision, it's a power that he has, but it never really becomes a thing that he uses on a regular basis. It's a situational power. Yeah, because he can only use it uh, once per person. And even in places where he gets in a bind, it's not like they just rely on it. 
he only uses it when it's very specifically called for. And most of the time, he's getting out of binds through much, much different situations. And it's not like when he reads somebody's mind, he doesn't have the Joseph Joestar, Ha! Your next phrase is going to be... Magic. My favorite part of the entire power, though, is that uh, Azuzu tricks him on the very first time he uses it so that he ne can never read her mind again. That's such a <laughs> subtle character moment. And I think this sort of ties into what I want to talk about with Sento. Because much like how Kaname is a Sundere, Isuzu is a Kudere, but also she's not just there to be a Kudere. She has an actual character. One of the smartest episodes was where they like tear her down and show that she has no interpersonal relationship ability whatsoever. And you think that, oh, okay, well, that's kind of the end of that. And then they build her back up in a totally different side of things and logistics and, and emergency type skills. And it was just a nice character arc and a lot better than just being like, oh, I guess you were bad at that, but now you're good at that. It is very specific to what would make sense for her to be good at as a soldier. And Justin, you mentioned this earlier about Isuzu's outfit. She very much has that sort of mentality of a royal guard or a bodyguard for a member of the royal family. They mostly stay Big insulated time. away from the general public and they're not supposed to develop feelings for anybody in the outside world. They have a specific loyalty to one person. And in the case of Sento, her loyalty is to Princess Latifah. Yes, big time. And actually, one thing I forgot to mention with that is that um, what factors into that is like the heavy, I guess, I almost called it a military veteran type style to it. Very... Darn it. Folk, it's very focused thinking. That's it. That's what I'm trying to say. Very focused thinking. Very um, myopic. Very, myopic um, is the word you're thinking yes. of. Yes, that's what I'm thinking. Myopic. It's myopic. It's very like very stuck on one thing. And um, it's kind of and she, to, and she to me is a very interesting take on that. You don't see a lot of Frankly, a lot of sympathetic, actually, my, very myopic characters. Unless you're going for, you know, it's a very, very ah, darn it, rigidly written show. I'm having, I'm having a mess right here tonight. Much like how Kaname is a sundere, but a sundere for a certain reason. Sento is a kudere, but she's believable. Like she's not written to be a stereotype. She has this personality because of her job. It is quite telling when you can write a character that feels so natural that taking a guy out on a date at gunpoint doesn't feel out of character in, in the slightest. And that's another parallel between Sento and Kaname. Kaname will hit Sosuke with a paper fan. Sento shoots Kanye, or rather the mascots, with her magic gun. Where'd she purchase that? Which is, like most of the main cast here, just another musical reference to a type of guitar popular in the 70s. And I think, because we won't mention this, somebody will. Five of the major characters are named after famous rappers. 
Seiya Kanye is named after rap genius and escaped mental patient Kanye West. <laughs> Clutch. Get it? Because Seiya is the Japanese word for West. And he's almost as narcissistic as Kanye. I would rather be around Seiya than I would Kanye. Let's leave it at that. Well, that goes without saying. Uh, Isuzu Sento is named after 50 Cent. The kanji for her name translates to 50 bells. Sento being the Japanese saying of scent. Princess Latifah is named after Queen Latifah, obviously. Seiya's roommate, who we don't see too often, Aisukubu is named after Ice Cube. And the main villain, who we'll get to, Takaya Kurisu, you flip his name around, is Kurisu Takaya, which is supposed to be Chris Tucker. <laughs> Man, that is a deep cut. <laughs> but the difference between Takaya and Chris is that Takaya has such an incredibly soothing voice. <laughs> Well, Jay Hickman is like a king of doing that villain that is very laid back in a way, um, but can still come off as menacing. If you've ever seen like Review Starlight, he was the giraffe. And he just has that world around him. And one of my favorites, he's the Duke of Normandy and Princess Principal doing a very similar, I'm evil and going to take you down, but I'm not going to make a fuss about it. He's oh, I'm fully aware of, of Jay Hickman. I'm just referencing one of his uh, one of his roles. And if you know, if any of you out there know what it is, good on you. He's great at playing sleazy characters. Like what one deep cut for Jay Hickman is that he is ace fighter pilot and former quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, Alex Smith in Gravion. And that is a show I have not seen in a really long time. I guess we should also talk about the villain Takaya Kurisu, because even if he isn't a central villain, every time he shows up, he has such great presence. The best way I can describe him is Takaya Kurisu is a villain that wants our hero to succeed. I just really like how Takaya is just, in my opinion, he's delightfully smug all the time. He's your typical best-for-business corporate bureaucrat, and, you know, he knows that Amagi is on its last legs, but at the same time, when he talks with Seiya, there's an air of confidence in his voice that he truly believes that Seiya can turn Amagi Brilliant Park around. But, you know, he has the typical, well, good luck trying to do the impossible, Seiya, but I don't think you're gonna be able to pull this one out. Like I said, delightfully smug. Just like in Fullmetal Panic, Shoji Gato writes villains so well. The ones where each one has sort of a moral code, like, Takaya has a moral code. Not once does Takaya try to sabotage Amagi Brilliant Park. He merely lets Seiya rise or fall on his own. And that's why he's such a good villain. Every time he shows up, he's like, well, look at Amabri now, Kurisu. Seiya sure proved you wrong. No, that's actually a really good way of looking at Takia. It's like, yeah, he's, I mean, he's a villain, he's antagonistic, but he doesn't go out of his way to be antagonistic, like, directly. He just, 
he sets out his plan and just kind of chills in the background a little bit, popping up every now and then to check up on things. I think that's a really decent, a really good approach to a villain. There's nuance to his character. He's not your typical exactly. evil corporate executive. He wants a fair say, fight. Best... If he loses it, that's all right. I was gonna say he's, he's the best. He's a, not the best, but he's a really good. He's a really good representation of the cruel reality of economics, especially um, tying it back to what we said about the business of theme parks earlier. He kind of represents that need to unrelenting, harsh freight train like need to. Um, fulfill business obligations, sometimes in direct opposition to the fun parts of theme park life, which actually pretty well exemplifies how he, he shows up every now and then, just like business obligations. And you have to show up now and every now and then to sort of help. Remind everyone that, hey, there's a bit of a gravity to your situation. It's all fun and games, but ultimately you gotta gotta get over this hump here. And it's very subtle, but it's also very clever. They even give a nod to the realities of economics and development and having to sell off part of the park to effectively build greater demand for the park by putting a mall nearby. So it's kind of a nice touch of saying like, yeah, I mean, we're not rooting for this guy to tear down the park, but there is a demand issue here and it's not something we can get through without giving something up. And we've spent so much time talking about the main cast. I don't even, we have barely scratched the surface when it comes to some of the other cast members. Like I want to talk about the mascots because they steal the show. I want a series that's all about them. And I'm, before any of you talk, I just want to say, this is where my trivia about Shoji Gato comes in, because you can tell Shoji Gato loves amusement parks. Do you want to know where he got the inspiration for Terami, Mofel, and Macaron? Do tell. Do tell. Okay, this is fun. Shoji Gato went to Disneyland, and I forget if it was Disneyland California or Tokyo Disneyland, and he saw a group of children playing with one of the cast members or mascots and he looked at that and he thought to himself what if these mascots were assholes to the children (laughs) that's a thought i'm sure a lot of people have had i've had it before i mean there was that guy in the tigger suit that punched a kid in the face (laughs) (laughs) this is my first time learning about this it sounds amazing (laughs) amazingly insane i don't tend to be one for anime merchandise but the one that i wish i had gotten before it sold out was at one point they made beer mugs with the mascots on them telling you to drink and it would have been so delightful (laughs) oh i want that so bad now me too because i love because these mascots come from a literal magic kingdom it's not like there are people inside that outfit and they make a great joke out of this by the way but these mascots have lives outside the park and they are horrible people 
in different ways. Like, the one who's the most normal, surprisingly, is Moful. But, like, Macaron is a gambling addict who plays at a pachinko parlor on a routine basis. And Terami is a ladies' man who always ogles any pretty girls that come his way. Just the fact that Jessica Calvello voices Tyranny is... That is gold. That is just pure gold. Tyranny is not only awful, is apparently understands the making of bombs. For <laughs> She not only makes <laughs> Molotov cocktails, but bemoans not having any fertilizer. It's oh, no! Oh, <laughs> I forgot that. It oh, makes you wonder. Jesus! Oh, it makes Jesus. you wonder. It really makes you wonder what his life was like before the start of the series. What does it say when Mofel is the sane one of that group? Cardi's man. Cardi's everywhere. I mean, it's not really saying much because even he has his own share of dysfunctional quirks. Yeah, at least you think you might have a good heart in there. The other two, I'm not so sure. You have like a, a fraction of one good heart and a bunch of, okay, no, this is sus. This is supreme sus. And the faces that they make when they get up to no good are gold. Yes. Yes. Absolute gold. That I want a shirt. I want to talk about Princess Latifah for a bit, because there are points where I felt that she was the Tessa of the show, basically there to sit and look pretty, but I developed more of an attachment to Princess Latifah than I did with Tessa, mostly because Shoji Gato makes her feel important to the other characters. She's also got this, the the voice actor I know isn't, Nia from Gurren Lagann, but the way she's kind of delivered and in the show reminds me of that character because you know there is an importance here and it does tie throughout the plot and there's also she's used as a character to kind of guide the rest of things along and, and keep people's hopes up just enough even though she does understand how dire the situation is. So she becomes a lot more important to just the overall arc than she would have otherwise. And another thing I like about her, we talked about how they subvert Sento being a kudere for the sake of being a kudere. They do a little childhood friend bit with her and Seiya, but it doesn't come off as being cliche like, oh, she's a romantic interest. It's a lot more sentimental than that. In other words, a true childhood friend. Well, it's more in that Seiya owes a fair bit of debt to Princess Latifah, so him being in charge of Amabri is him paying her back. I'm pretty sure the show makes it entirely clear that the main romance, what little there is, is strictly between Sento and Seiya. He's not trying to make a love triangle like he did in Fullmetal Panic. I was just going to add about... Well, I do agree with uh, Latifah's connection with the, with the characters and her overall importance to the story, but I just never found her all that interesting as a character. Like, yeah, she's cute, she's pretty, but yeah, that's about it. Like, I under I understand her importance in the narrative, but I don't really feel too much of a connection to her. I think one of the smart things about how she's written is I agree she doesn't 
immediately spawn off a connection. But like even with how the plot is written and, you know, I don't know if it's spoilers because of what she's dealing with, it kind of makes sense that she wouldn't be all that interesting given what she's having to do over and over again that would make her character be a lot more reserved and and kind of a blank slate. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, that doesn't always make for like a likable type of character. It's just nice to know that it made sense within the plot instead of just being lazy writing. I mean, yeah, that's true. And I'm not going to lie, the last, and I say last in quotes given episode 13 is pretty much a throwaway episode, the what the real finale, episode 12, it kind of did hit me in the feels a little bit. At least the first time around. They do a really good job in the finale of giving it time to to let those feels manifest and show each character responding and dealing with the stakes that I think makes it so that it, it takes more of an emotional punch instead of paying it all off quickly. I think it's just really nice that they let those sentimental moments like with um, with the other three and Latifah, like those moments, those little brief moments that they had with one was just really nice. You do get a sense of her importance to both the story and to the world of Amagi Brilliant Park. There's a lot that we can talk about with the other characters, like the fairy idols, but mostly I just want to talk about them because I love, I want to make the joke about how Sylphie, the wind fairy, is basically the Hamsar of the group. Like I said before, and I'll say it again, Sylphie is just my one single brain cell. Because, you know, all the other fairies in the group are totally normal. You've got Muse, who is the leader. You have Kobori, the stoic one. Salama, the social media girl who's always on her cell phone. And then oh, there's... the TikTok, in other words. Well, Sylphie's the TikTok dancer, as shown in the show. And then you just have Sylphie, who's off doing her own little thing, riding around on an office chair, etc. Like, as I said, I would love to see a chapter that follows her around for a spell. You know, I would be down with that, actually. That'd be a fun OVA subject, actually. <sighs> Speaking of OAVs, I do want to say if there's any complaint I have, it's that the final episode feels like it's a throwaway episode. Like, they told everything yeah. they had to say, and they just said one episode. So the final episode is a filler. And it's not like it's an OAV. This is the episode that aired on television, and there is one OAV, which... Is a pretty good episode in and of itself, but I don't know, like, episodes 13 and 14 can just be glossed over. Like, put episodes 13 and 14 somewhere between the big show's climax, and it flows a lot better. It's like they tried to make an oddly, by anime standards, numbered TV show, but then realized there wasn't quite enough in there for an odd-numbered series, so they kind of just hacked it on. Either that or they did, I hope it wasn't something unthinkable, like, I don't know, putting things in out of order, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, it's not uh, Haruhi Suzumiya, except it works you, there. You almost wonder if they were kicking around 
doing more episodic stuff because it the 13 and 14 really do feel like they've gone full sitcom pulled any of the plot away and are just kind of playing with the characters in a sandbox that actually could be a good that actually could have been a really good concept if they'd gone forward with it yeah but there's only been one season of amabri and after the kyoani arson attack and yasuhiro takamoto sadly dying in it the future of the series is uncertain, but I can say, and this is where we give our final thoughts, I enjoyed Amagi Brilliant Park. Indeed. I it's Dang. a it's an underrated classic in my opinion. Amagi to me is just like I said before, it's just fun. It's nothing special by any means, but it's a good, enjoyable watch at most. To me, I think what sets it apart beyond at least for me being more than just an enjoyable watch is it's a pretty creative premise it's not like the most revolutionary thing in the world but just like every single part of it from the voice acting to the animation to the plot to the comedy is just done at such a high level that it reminds me of some of those comedies that like Azumanga Daio or Fumofu or some of these things where you'll go back and you'll rewatch an episode completely out of context just because it's so much fun to watch. Oh yeah, it's it's the type of show that you can put on and it can be like background noise or whatever, but you can still enjoy it every now and then. It's a lot of fun in the crowd too. I forgot to point that out earlier. This so if you want to get a bunch of people in a room like hyped up like break out the snacks the alcohol the whatever this is a good show to do it on it's a it's got a good length to it it's very it's got good energy and um and good comedy what else could you ask for oh and some 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 really good english dub acting too i'm actually going to be showing this at my next anime night with my friends so we'll put your little theory to the test it is a blast to share with people, especially those who are going in cold, because the first time they, like the mascots, just start swearing or beating people up, it's a delightful reaction to watch other people have. Yes. Mm-hmm. But speaking of viewing this, this is where things get dicey. I already recorded in the disclaimer that... Amagi Brilliant Park used to be on High Dive, but because the rights have expired, it's not on there anymore. Now, it is still in print on Right Stuff and various others, but Lord knows how long that's going to last. So, buy the Blu-rays while you still can, and if it ever does become available streaming, it is your job to watch it legally. I know Nate's going to a con soon, if you're ever at a con, don't sleep on this one. This is a show that will show up in the most random stores at a convention merchandise hall. Definitely don't sleep on it. If you can get it for a good price, it's well worth the entry. But that's going to do it for this episode. We had a lot of fun exploring the works of Shoji Gato, but now it's time to get back to one of my favorite subjects. Two, actually giant robots, and OAVs from the 80s. And the next thing we're going to cover is one of the most important in both genres, because we're going to look at an OAV that effectively kick-started the OAV scene of the 80s. There were stuff before it, but this was the one that proved OAVs were a viable format, 
we're going to look at 1985's Megazone 2-3 Part 1. We will discuss the history of it, how it was made, who worked on it, and how it's connected to Robotech, of all things. And also, a big announcement! I'm going to go to Animazement in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I will be running panels at that convention, the same ones I ran at Otakon. The first one I'm going to be running is The Birth, Death, and Rebirth of the OAV. That will be Friday at 2 p.m. My flagship panel, The Best Anime Movies You Haven't Seen, that will be Saturday at 7.30 p.m. And the third and final panel I will be hosting is Gundam, A New Type's Guide to the Universal Century. That will be my last panel that weekend. It will be Sunday at 10 a.m. And after that, I'm out of there. So... Watch out for me at Otakon, and if you see me, please talk to me, because I love chatting with other fans about my taste in anime and whatnot. And if you like the show, please be sure to leave a like, subscribe, follow, do whatever on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, anywhere you get your podcasts from. And be sure to follow us on social media at OtakuNateShow on Facebook, and I am on Twitter at twitter.com slash OtakuNateShow. So until then, this is OtakuNate. This is Justin Young. Ivy William. Eric Berg. And we're signing off and saying, it's not just a fairy tale. So as a bit of an outtake, while we were recording, for some reason, my iPod Touch went off and started playing some music. And here's what happened. And it's never explained why or how. It's just, I guess it's just a cute little hang visual gag. Hang on, something, hang on, something's going off. Oh. For some reason, I set off my iPod Touch. What in the world? <laughs> Shit, this place is haunted. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, where were we?